If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm Sue Wingrove, the magazine's deputy editor. I'm joined by our features editor, Rob Attar. Hello. Coming up in this podcast... So in her petition, she described how a local knight called John Cornwall had tried repeatedly to force his way into her castle. And the ruses that he undertook are very colourful indeed. He disguised himself as a friar, hoping no doubt to get into the castle and persuade her to give her confession to him. Professor Mark Ormrod on medieval petitions. He managed to improve the telescope far beyond what anybody else achieved within a short term. So he could see things in the heavens that other people couldn't. Christopher Lewis on the great Italian astronomer Galileo. People tend to have heard of Galileo, but very few people have heard of Harriet despite his achievements. And Alison Boyle will be speaking about one of England's lesser-known scientific pioneers. This twice-monthly podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History magazine, the UK's best-selling history magazine. We'll tell you how to get hold of a copy later. And now, in the medieval period, if you had a grievance that you were unable to resolve at common law, you could make a petition directly to the Crown. Today, the National Archives Public Record Office has over 17,500 of these petitions and they provide a fascinating glimpse into medieval justice, as well as a wealth of incidental material about people's daily lives. Thanks to the project Medieval Petitions, you can search these online. Earlier, I spoke to Mark Ormrod, Professor of History at the University of York, who is Director of the project that has surveyed the petitions. He writes for us in the latest issue of the magazine. So, Mark, perhaps you could start by telling us what is a medieval petition? Well, a petition is a very distinctive kind of document written to uh, a recognisable style, and it addressed the king and his council really in the language of prayer and supplication. Uh, A petition asked for some favour to be performed, Um, things like a grant of patronage or a remission from taxation or an intervention in a legal case, all kinds of things, really. 
Um, the really important point was to emphasize that you were appealing directly to the king's own stock of mercy and grace. And therefore, of course, you had to justify your case in terms of the terrible things that were happening to you and the iniquities that you were suffering in the meantime. So why would uh, someone usually seek justice and why would they then have to um, make a petition? Well, a petition, uh, a written petition, is of course a, is simply a writing down of something that might otherwise be communicated orally. The writing down, I think, is part of the process that happens in medieval England, where kings require a greater level of bureaucracy and accountability in in uh, in, in government. So it's it's part of that whole process of getting things written down and pinned down. This means that there were a, a whole series of stages to the process of petitioning and first and foremost indeed you the petitioner would need to find a lawyer who uh, for a fee of course could write out your complaint in the appropriate form and you then had to find someone to take that petition physically to the king wherever he happened to be in the country um, now sometimes petitioners might actually do this themselves we've got good evidence of people handing them over physically to the king or to his officers they might use messengers or I think very interestingly um, when Parliament was in session they may very well have used their local MPs as intermediaries because the role of Parliament was very important in the early history of petitioning and finally, you needed to ensure that your petition rose to the top of what could be a very tall heap, um, which was a question, of course, either of a well-timed backhander to the royal clerks who collected them, or simply of managing to persuade them that your case was indeed more urgent than anything else on the table. So, OK, so if I had one in front of me, what would I be looking at? What do they look like? The um, petitions are, are quite small pieces of parchment, very, very rarely pieces of paper, because the period that we're talking about, the late 13th to the mid-15th centuries, uh, is, a, is a period of parchment, really. Um, and these were cut to fit the size of the text. You didn't waste your parchment in the Middle Ages. Early petitions are, in fact, very, very brief, perhaps only two or three lines long, whereas later ones are much more complex and verbose. And the language also varies over time. Most early petitions were written in Anglo-Norman French, that special language of the, of the elite used in England since the time of the Norman Conquest. But from about the time of King Henry V in the uh, 1410s, 1420s, most petitions were actually written in kind of uh, English that we might call Chaucerian English. And actually that language change in itself accounts for some of the verbosity of later petitions um, took a lot longer to say things in English than it did in French. Um, it's worth pointing out that in spite of the challenges of the handwriting and the language, it's actually fairly easy to use petitions because of their brevity. And once one knows the basic form of them, it's relatively easy to, to find one's way through them. I'm also pleased to say that our online facility at the National Archives provides full summaries in modern English of the contents. Okay, and at the end of the podcast, I'll be um, telling listeners how they can um, search those petitions. Um, so what sort of general period are we talking about? Well, uh, petitions really um, 
start, there's a, in, in the late 13th century, there is a moment early in the reign of Edward I where the king actually really seems to have invented them. He, he deliberately sought uh, uh, the reactions of his subjects to his rule and in particular um, required them to, uh, to, to tell tales on, on local officials. So petitions are invented by Edward I in the 1270s and they carry on through the rest of the Middle Ages and indeed on into the early modern period. The particular group of petitions that I've been working on for this project uh, date predominantly from the late 13th and first half of the 14th centuries, but there's also a big selection of material through uh, to the time of the Wars of the Roses. Okay, so moving on to the content of the petitions, um, your feature for BBC History magazine describes one particular petition by a lady called Lettice in 1378. Perhaps you could tell us what happened to her. Yes, poor old Lettice Curiel. Um, Lettice was the widow of a a landholder living at Westerhanger Castle uh, in Kent. And uh, like uh, other wealthy single women of the period, I have to say, was very much prey to unscrupulous claimants to her land, uh, her possessions, and perhaps also her hand. Um, So in her petition, she described how a local knight called John Cornwall had tried repeatedly to force his way into her castle. And the ruses that he undertook are very colourful indeed. He disguised himself as a friar, hoping no doubt to get into the castle and persuade her to give her confession to him. He also dressed up his own henchmen as her servants uh, in in a deliberate attempt, as it were, to, to put off the doorkeeper and get access to the castle. When all of those failed, he brought a band of up to about 60 men to the castle who, according to Lettice, scaled the walls and beat down the doors and windows. And on the most recent occasion that she recounted, Lettice tells us how she had been forced, in fact, to hide in the castle moat for four hours in order to evade capture. It's a small miracle, really, that she uh, actually survived such an experience. So clearly she was in dire straits in the summer of 1378 when she made her petition. Okay, so she was she was really desperate, wasn't she? Um, Yes, she was. Yes. So what did she want the king to do about it? Well, she wanted justice by the letter of the law. Um, now, now, as a as a widowed woman, she had full status at law and uh, and ready access to criminal justice in the normal ways. She wouldn't normally have had to go to the king, particularly about about all of this, but. The point is that Lettice really knew that her attacker was was a powerful man with friends in high places, and she really feared his ability to manipulate the courts for his own benefit. So her petition was really asking for two things, to have a special court presided over by senior royal judges whose presence would reflect the seriousness of the allegations that she had made, but also to have a guarantee from the king 
that the unsavoury John Cornwall would not be allowed, as so many minor landholders were allowed in this period, to evade prosecution. It's very common in this period for people, particularly those who participated in the King's Wars, to uh, secure royal pardons from, uh, from, such, from such crimes and then get off scot-free by actually doing a period of service in the wars. So that's really why Lettice was so frightened, I think, of John Cornwall, that she knew that he could actually skew the legal process and she appealed directly to the king to help her in her time of trouble. I see. So do we know actually if her petition was successful or not? We don't. It's a curious thing and it also shows us how how fragile much of this precious detail about social conditions in the later middle ages uh, really is now the decisions that were taken by the king and his council in response to petitions like this were usually written on the petition itself either at the foot of the text or on the more commonly on the back of the petition but there's no such memo on lettuce's petition um, nor can the case be tracked any further in associated records, particularly in the judicial records. Now, this doesn't automatically mean that she didn't actually get what she wanted, though it's also, of course, uh, quite possible that John Cornwall did indeed manage to confound the course of justice in 1378. It's a good example, I think, of the way in which petitions provide us often with a moment, a very precious moment, about an event that otherwise we would know nothing about and, and often it's quite difficult to contextualize the thing okay it's a, it's a tantalizing snapshot really um but you didn't have to be high up in the social scale did you to make a petition um i think in your feature you make the point that there was a huge social range of people who could uh, petition um could you give us some examples perhaps of more humble petitions yes um, there were important exceptions uh, to the rule that everybody had access to the king's grace. Um, married women in the Middle Ages could not petition directly um, because they were at law covered by their husbands, but of course their grievances could be submitted by those husbands. The people who were really excluded from the process were serfs, the unfree, uh, the people that we often call villains. They were barred because they were subject to justice only in the private courts of their lords. But we can say that, uh, that well over 50% of the population would have the direct legal right to petition the king. Of course, there were some very obvious constraints associated with cost and access, but it's really striking how many of the petitions that we have surviving came from what we might call the little people of later medieval England. Um, and I think one of the ways in which they made their presence felt in the system was to make communal petitions. So it's quite frequent to find petitions in, in this group from, um, from collectives, from, uh, from village communities, where we can see how the leading inhabitants uh, of uh, a peasant community might have clubbed together to make it possible to deliver a petition to the king for some local public grievance. So things like um, bad roads, 
uh, harsh taxes and particularly those very nasty and unscrupulous sheriffs that we know all about from the Robin Hood legend um, become major features in petitions from um, what we might now call ordinary Middle England. And petitions therefore give you a very powerful sense of how those little people could get their voices heard, uh, even in very high places in the Middle Ages. Okay, Mark, thanks very much for telling us all about medieval petitions. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. That was Mark Ormrod, director of the Medieval Petitions Project and editor of the book Medieval Petitions, Grace and Grievance. That's published by Boydell and Brewer. In a moment, I'll be giving details of how you can search the petitions. They're a great resource for historians, but also very easy to search yourself. I did a search of my local area and found some wonderful petitions, but do beware, it's fascinating and totally addictive. So, to look at medieval petitions, just go to the website www.nationalarchives.gov.uk and search the catalogue. You can use any keyword, but do enter the words SC8 in the department code box in order to limit your search just to medieval petitions. Mark's feature is in the July issue of the magazine, which you can get in all good news agents in the UK for just £3.60. And even better, you can save money and ensure you never miss an issue by subscribing. We have great subscription deals available whether you're in the UK or overseas. Go to our website, bbchistorymagazine.com, for details. Cheers, Rob. Now, in this month's issue, we've got a feature about Galileo, the legendary scientist and astronomer. Here's Rob to tell us more. Yes, Galileo Galilei was one of the most influential scientists in European history. He is perhaps most famous for his astronomical work, and this year is the 400th anniversary of his first telescopic observations of the heavens. Historian Christopher Lewis has written a piece about Galileo in our latest issue. I spoke to him about the importance of Galileo's work and why he found himself in hot water with the Vatican. Could you please briefly explain to our listeners who Galileo was? Galileo was an Italian scientist born in 1564, which is the same year that Shakespeare was born, and he died in 1642, which is the same year that uh, Newton was born. So he straddles the gap, if you like, if there was a gap, between the Renaissance and the early modern period. His career didn't really take off until he was 46. He's one of those cases of somebody who was an overnight success, but based on decades of hard work put in to get to uh, the position that he could exploit his success. So he spent the first uh, 20 years of his life as a university teacher of mathematics, although mathematics in those days meant anything mathematical, so it included astronomy and mechanics and things like that. 
And then, as is described briefly in the article in 1609, he didn't discover, but he radically improved the telescope which had just been discovered in the Netherlands by a Dutch spectacle maker. And Galileo turned the telescope on the heavens, on the stars, as did several other people at the time. But Galileo had the advantage that he was not only a sort of a good theoretical scientist, but he was extremely capable with his hands. He was very good at actually making things. And so he managed to improve the telescope far beyond what anybody else achieved within a short term. So he could see things in the heavens that other people couldn't. And what he discovered, as is outlined in the article, in the first instance, the most important and exciting thing that he discovered was four moons orbiting Jupiter, which nobody else had ever even imagined might exist. Uh, And that discovery catapulted him to international celebrity, really. And from then on, he left his university post because he was fed up with teaching, basically, and headed to the court of the Medici in Florence, in Tuscany. And from there, he became very important or influential, not only in the Medici court, but in the Roman court, the the Vatican court, the court of the the Pope in Rome. And ultimately, he came into conflict with the Pope and was tried in 1633 on vehement suspicion of heresy for his astronomical views. And that is perhaps what he is, ironically, most famous for today. After the trial in 1633, he spent the remaining nine years of his life under an ignominious house arrest. So, although at the times it appeared to ruin his reputation, probably it is that event, the trial, which is so iconic of the relationship between science and religion, that actually has made him the figurehead that he is today. Now, in the article that have you written this month, we focus on 1609, when he first turned his telescope to the heavens. How important a moment would you say that was for astronomy? is a pivotal moment in the development of astronomy. I mean, astronomy was at a watershed at the time already. The dominant view of the way that the the world, the cosmos, the universe is throughout the Middle Ages and indeed in antiquity had been, understandably, that the Earth is stationary at the centre of the universe and that the Sun and the Moon and the other planets revolve around the Earth. Now that view had been challenged by the Polish astronomer Nicholas Copernicus in his On the Celestial Revolutions published in 1543 and Copernicus suggested that far from the earth being stationary and the sun going round the earth that instead that it was the sun that was stationary and the earth and the other planets all orbited round the sun. Now actually this obviously rather provocative and at odds with common sense view had very little impact on astronomical thinking for the next sort of 60 years. So in in 1600, when Galileo was 36 and uh, a youngish professor at, at Padua, there were not many astronomers or indeed lay people who believed in the Copernican theory. So that's in 1600. There were probably about 10 people, literally, in the whole of Europe who could be counted as believers in the Copernican theory. By about 1650, the majority of educated people probably had abandoned the old view that the Earth is stationary and subscribed to the new Copernican view that actually it was the Sun that was stationary with the Earth moving round it. And I think it's fair to say that Galileo's astronomical observations were crucial in accounting for that shift from a Earth-centred, stationary Earth point of view to a theory 
that believed that the sun was stationary and that the earth was moving. It's, it's not a straightforward matter of Galileo's telescopic observations simply proving the one theory and, and disproving the old theory. It's a much more complicated process, but in at least two ways, Galileo's telescopic observations helped to undermine the old point of view, even if they didn't positively prove the new point of view. So, as I said before, one of the first and most startling of Galileo's telescopic discoveries was the four moons orbiting round Jupiter. He went on later in the year to discover that the planet Venus had phases the way that the moon does. And although it's sort of difficult to explain lane without uh, diagrams and so on. This meant that Venus had to be orbiting around the sun. The following year, he and various other people also discovered that the sun itself had spots, sunspots on it, and that, that was also very important. These were all fairly technical things. They didn't prove the Copernican heliocentric view that the, the sun was stationary at the centre of the universe, but they were completely incompatible with the old medieval view. So they sort of undermined the old view and by undermining the old view they made the new theory that much more plausible. It was a complicated process because it was not just one theory versus another. There was a whole variety of rival theories so it's not a simple matter. I mean it is not obvious to anybody even today, I think, not obvious to most people, that the Earth is hurtling through space and spinning on its axis and so on, and it was even less obvious to people at the time. And Galileo's telescopic observations didn't prove that, but they did undermine the old view. And his observations also had a big impact on how we view the Moon... Yes, that's the second thing I was coming to. I mean, what I've been talking about so far are really quite technical issues that your sort of man in the street, so to speak, or man in the piazza, would perhaps not have really been profoundly interested in. But what I think um, Galileo's telescopic observations, and particularly of the moon, did was to undermine the difference that traditional medieval astronomy had seen between the earthly realm and the celestial realm. According to medieval philosophy and medieval astronomy, the earth was the place of change, growth, decay. The, the four earthly elements, earth, air, fire and water, were in a sort of constant interplay constant interaction, constant change. The heavens, on the other hand, was the realm of unchangeable eternity. So the heavenly bodies were, in the terms of the time, sort of incorruptible. They didn't change. Okay, they revolved in their spheres in their orbits, but those circular revolutions were eternal and unchanging. I mean, that was the theory, anyhow. The astronomy actually needed to be much more complicated to account for the appearances, but the theory, the underlying theory, was that the heavens were incorruptible, unchangeable, eternal. And not only did everything move in perfectly regular circular orbits, but all the celestial bodies were supposed to be perfectly spherical and smooth. So, when Galileo turned his telescope on the moon and managed to demonstrate fairly convincingly that actually the moon was not a perfectly smooth celestial sphere. This sort of undermined this fundamental distinction between the heavens and the earth, which had been a crucial part of medieval cosmology. And when the following year, Galileo and some other people, more or less at the same time, discovered that the sun had spots on it, this meant that the sun too was no longer the perfect immaculate celestial body that uh, it was required to be in the medieval system. So those discoveries, particularly the moon, I think, undermined this 
supposed distinction between the heavens and the earth and made the heavens and the earth part of the same system. I think this played into the enthusiasm, the interest in the times that there had been through the 16th century in the exploration of the earth, the discovery of the new world. Now with Galileo's telescope, you were discovering new worlds sort of in the heavens and they weren't fundamentally different celestial worlds. They were other worlds like the earth and there was a lot of discussion by other astronomers and other popular writers of whether the moon and the other planets or even the sun might be inhabited and so on. And I think this served to make the heavens and the earth part of the same system. And I think that helped to pave the way, if you like, for making the Copernican idea that the earth itself was a planet helped to make that idea a much more plausible one in the popular mind. Do you think that eventually that helped lead up to the moon landing, which we're also celebrating the anniversary of this month? Well, it's all part of an ongoing process. I don't think you can sort of pick out one event and say that if this had not happened, then people would not have walked on the moon. Galileo, as I said, didn't himself invent the telescope, although he claimed to have reinvented it independently, merely on the basis of having heard that there was such a thing. So if Galileo hadn't improved the telescope the way he did, other people were doing the same thing at the same time. The English uh, mathematician and scientist Thomas Harriot, he also obtained and improved the telescope and actually probably looked at the moon in 1609, in August of 1609, before Galileo did. So it would only have been a matter of time before other people discovered the moons of Jupiter and so on. And so you, you can't say that Galileo's telescopic observations on their own resulted in these moon landings, but uh, they were a iconic, symbolic sort of step along the way towards changing man's view of the way that the universe, the cosmos is, so that the idea of travelling to the moon became not just sort of a literary fantasy, but actually became a material, physical possibility, although clearly it took 350 years to get there. But um, if you don't have the idea that it's a physical possibility, then obviously it's, it's never going to happen. So Galileo's telescopic observations and his later writings on astronomy and cosmology and, and physics were crucial steps in that path of development which uh, Western culture, if you like, Western science embarked upon. Something you mentioned earlier was how Galileo fell foul of the Catholic Church. Indeed. Why was it that they were so opposed to his discoveries? That's a very difficult question, which I don't really have a nice, neat answer to. Part of the problem was that in the course of the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation, that is, through the 16th century and the rejection of the Roman Catholic Church by large numbers of people, especially in Northern Europe, so followers of Luther and then followers of Calvin, one of the main ideals that they upheld was a return to the Bible as being the source of Christian truth, whereas the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages had had a much more flexible, shall we say, approach to what uh, was involved in Christian religion, which was not just exclusively dependent upon the Bible as the one and only source of uh, Christian revelation, but also saw the Church itself as something which had, over the centuries, been a, an ongoing source of Christian teaching and wisdom. So, in the 16th century with the Reformation, the Bible and that meant inevitably, to begin with at least, a literal 
interpretation of the Bible became very important to the Reformed churches. And in the course of the Counter-Reformation, which was the Catholic Church's efforts to respond to the Reformation, it meant that the Catholic Church too was increasingly pushed towards taking a very literal approach to the interpretation of the Bible. So that meant that Galileo's discoveries, as far as the Catholic Church in Italy was concerned, came at a time when there was an increasing preoccupation with the exact literal interpretation of the Bible or insistence upon the literal truth of the Bible as being not just some sort of moral, spiritual truth, but as being the literal physical truth. So if the Bible says that the earth is stationary, as it sort of inevitably does in passing from time to time, whereas once in the Middle Ages indeed that would have been regarded as being something that wouldn't necessarily have been the literal truth but would have just been how the word of God was presented to people at the time in terms that they could understand. Come the late 16th and early 17th century the Catholic Church, the theologians of the Catholic Church were insisting much more dogmatically if you like that uh, if the Bible said something was true then that was the physical truth and you couldn't get round it by pretending that it was just an, an allegory or just written in terms that people understood at the time. So Galileo and more broadly in some respects you might say scientific thinking of the time was unfortunately going in the opposite direction to the one that the Catholic Church was going in at the time. Beyond that there are very interesting questions about the fundamental compatibility of religious belief and scientific investigation which obviously somewhat to the Catholic Church's dismay have resonated down the centuries and if they've been resolved uh, have only recently been resolved. That's one perspective on what happened from another point of view, Galileo fell foul of courtly intrigue in the corridors of power in Rome. Galileo made enemies as easily as he made friends, and they sort of caught up with him eventually, you might say. That was Christopher Lewis, and you can find out more about Galileo in our latest issue. And as Christopher mentioned, Galileo was not the only astronomer taking advantage of the telescope in the early 17th century. Englishman Thomas Harriot was also making recordings of the moon in 1609, and he was in fact probably the first person ever to do so. The Science Museum's forthcoming exhibition, Cosmos and Culture, features some of Harriot's work, and I've been speaking to curator Alison Boyle about this brilliant and unusual man. Could you please briefly explain who Thomas Harriot was and why he was important? Thomas Harriot was an English mathematician and astronomer. He's important for several reasons. He did quite a lot of early surveying work. He developed early forms of algebra, some of which we still use today. But what he's most important this year for is that he's the first person to have made a recorded astronomical observation through a telescope. He's very important, but actually he's very unknown because he hasn't published any of this stuff. So people tend to have heard of Galileo, but very few people have heard of Harriet despite his achievements. And when you say he's important this year, is that because of the International Year of Astronomy? This year is International Year of Astronomy, so Harriet is coming to the attention of people who maybe not have known about him before. This year also marks 400 years since he made that first recorded observation of the moon through a telescope. And it's also 400 years since Galileo made his observations, but they were a few months later than Harriet. So Thomas Harriet observed the moon before Galileo did then? 
Well, what we know is that Harriet made a recorded drawing of the moon before Galileo made any recorded dated drawings. It would be very hard to say who the first person was to actually use a telescope for astronomy. Harriet and Galileo were just one of several people who were using this newly invented device around this time. But Harriet's drawing made on the 26th of July, 1609, clearly has a date written in the corner. It clearly says the moon is five days old. And actually, astronomers now can check and see that actually it would have been five days after a new moon on 26th of July 1609. So it's the first absolutely definite recorded dated observation that we have. Galileo's observations, there's nothing recorded with dates on until about August. So as far as we can prove it, Harriet would have been the first person to make a recorded observation through a telescope. So had he published it at the time, he might have had all the fame that Galileo now has. Um, yeah, Harriet is a bit of a mystery as to why he never published anything, because had he done so, he certainly would have been extremely famous. Aside from his astronomical work, there is his mathematical work as well, um, all of which stands with anything that was being done at the time. And there are various questions as to why Harriet didn't publish any of his work. Galileo was a lecturer. He needed to make some money. He needed to find himself a patron. So Galileo very aggressively published his work and sought to gain favor with the Medici patrons. Harriet doesn't seem to have needed to do that and seemed to have been a very reserved character, so he never published anything, which meant that although he was reasonably well known in scientific circles at the time, after his death he became less well known and has been forgotten by most people now. So is it time that he got the recognition he deserves? Well, hopefully it being astronomy year is an opportunity for Harriet to get some of the recognition that he should have, because certainly the early observations that he did of the moon and of sunspots and of the satellites of Jupiter would stand in comparison with what Galileo had done. So we certainly have, in the UK, there's an astronomer that everyone can be very, very proud of this year. And hopefully because it's the anniversary of his work and hopefully because some of this work is going to be exhibited in public and people will be able to see the quality of his drawings, it will give people a chance to find out more about this person and take an interest and recognise just what his influence could have been had he actually published any of it. Am I right to say that Harriet had quite a lot of other interesting moments in his life? Didn't he go to North America? Um, Yeah, Harriet's been a very interesting chap of the gentleman philosophers of the time. He had very wide-ranging interests. One of the first things that he did was go to Virginia with his patron, Sir Walter Raleigh, and he surveyed parts of Virginia. So he was one of the first people to chart the New World. While there, he made various connections with the Algonquin Indians, seems to have learned some of their language, and again, seems to have been one of the first people to study them on their own terms. His main interest seems to have always been mathematics, and he seems to have always considered himself a mathematician. But again, Again, with that, he's kind of extended and developed algebra, as was known at the time, and developed various algebraic symbols. So he's had a very, very wide-ranging area of interest, and astronomy really was just part of that. I know you've got the story of Thomas Harriet in your new exhibition, uh, Cosmos and Culture. What exactly of Harriet are you going to be exhibiting? In the Cosmos and Culture exhibition, which opens at the Science Museum in July, you'll be able to see four of Harriet's drawings. The first one is a facsimile of the real drawing, and that's the 26th of July moon drawing. There's very little you can actually see on that drawing. Harriet's telescope would have been magnifying by about six times, which really isn't enough to see the moon easily because you can't see the whole disk of the moon at once. And that shows shows very little detail. It shows what's called the terminator line, which is the line that separates the light and dark areas on the moon. What we also have 
have on display is an original of Harriet's moon map, which was made sometime later, probably around 1612, 1613. And he evidently had a much better telescope at that point because you can see the moon seas in quite a lot of detail and he's very, very precisely mapped those. We're also displaying his first observations of the satellites of Jupiter and from what he's written on the paper and even 400 years on, the writing's still very clear and it stands out from the paper very well. He seems to be saying, these are my first observations of the new moons of Jupiter. So clearly he had heard about Galileo's work and was trying to see for himself what he could see. The final drawing that's on display is, again, an original. It's Harriet's first observations of sunspots, dark patches on the sun that we now know to be caused by magnetic activity. Harriet seems to have been one of several people who discovered sunspots at around the same time, independently of other people in Europe. So although Galileo probably saw sunspots before Harriet did, Harriet couldn't have known what Galileo had found and then discovered them independently for himself. I see. And could you tell me perhaps some of the other things that visitors will see at the exhibition? Cosmos and Culture is a very wide-ranging exhibition. We've been rather ambitious and tempted to chart through a lot of the history of astronomy in one exhibition. So there are over 100 objects in the exhibition. So everything from Thomas Harriot's very, very earliest observations to the absolute most cutting-edge research going on now. So there's an object that is a prototype for a system that will search for gravitational waves, which is something that's predicted by Einstein's relativity theory. And that experiment doesn't actually start until next year. So we've gone from 400 years of observations to observations that haven't even started yet. We'll also have Copernicus's On the Revolution of the Heavenly Spheres, first edition of that book, which shows Copernicus's view of a sun-centered universe rather than an earth-centered universe a copy of Newton's Principia Mathematica, which laid out in mathematical form how the universe actually works. We have examples of how astronomers today observe the universe using light of different wavelengths. So in addition to the tube-like looking telescope that everyone's familiar with, there are things that don't look like telescopes at all. There is a mirror from an X-ray space telescope, which doesn't look like an ordinary mirror because X-rays don't work like visible light. There are parts of the pulsar array that Jocelyn Bell used in uh, the 1960s to discover pulsars. And then we've also got examples of astronomy in everyday life and how people have used astronomy for timekeeping and for navigation. And obviously, this was very important historically. You needed to know where you were, what time it was, and that's why a lot of astronomy developed. And we also have just some fun items. Astronomy was very much a craze in the 18th and 19th centuries. So we have mechanical lantern projections and people would come along and watch these and go to lectures. So it's a bit like the equivalent of IMAX theatres today. We've got a fan that was inspired by the Great Comet of 1811, which caused much excitement around the world. And we also have a homemade telescope that's made of bean catering cans, old wire coat hangers and old car parts. So there's a real range of different kinds of instruments in the exhibition. That was Alison Boyle. Cosmos and Culture runs at the Science Museum from the 23rd of July until December 2010. Entry is free. That's it for now. Thanks as ever for listening. Hope you enjoyed it and do look out for our August podcasts next month. <laughs>